click your fingers at Alex like he's a technician and he's going to I'm not fucking clicking my fingers at any technician, I'm saying to the three of us we should get started because I need to be somewhere and I'm running late and being late stresses me out because I like to be on time. Late? You, you, you gotta come to the Global South, man. Right, welcome to the third reading club of Alfred Bunga Bunga. Today's discussion concerns Twilight of the Elites by Christophe Julie. This is, as I said, our third book club. To remind you what we've discussed previously, the first one was The Old is Dying and the New Cannot Be Born, which is Nancy Fraser's book on progressive neoliberalism. Uh, the second one was Antipolitics on the Demonization of Ideology, Authority, and the State by Eliane Glazer. And... Today's is yet another short book. Uh, we do try to keep our selections brief and punchy, kind of books which are full of ideas but can be consumed relatively quickly. If you have any suggestions for ones you'd like us to do in the future, please feel free to suggest it via the usual channels. It's at BungaCast on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram too if you want to do that. Uh, and it's alphabungabunga at gmail.com if you want to email us anything. So, uh, if you're an influence peddling or full-blown kleptocracy patron, that's $10 and up, you're hearing this early, uh, and uh, you've also had an opportunity to send in your questions for us to discuss. This book, uh, it's an important book, I think, because it grapples with the future of France, and in some ways, I mean, France obviously is important in the sense that, for, for all that the Anglo world tries to ignore or uh, <laughs> or play down the importance of France. It's a country that once saw itself as the model of universal history. And if you look at the strikes going on now or the Gilets Jaunes, which uh, have riven France over the past year, it might yet be that once again, at least as concerns the, the global north. There are lots of very interesting struggles that are playing out in France, which are particular to France, but also many different uh, aspects which are pretty universal to what's happening across Western Europe and North America. So what this book tries to do, and I'll bring uh, George and Phil in in a second to supplement what I'm about to say, but it, it attempts to frame contemporary struggles in France around a sociological divide that relates to but isn't equivalent to class. So, I mean, it basically deals with uh, the metropolitan France, you know, exemplified mostly, you know, most of all by central Paris and a peripheral France of rural areas and especially small towns well, so-called left-behind towns, uh, which we can see reflections of, if you're not familiar with uh, French geography, you know, would be the equivalent of small northern towns in, in the UK, uh, northern English towns, I should say, uh, or, you know, the Rust Belt in, in the US. So maybe kind of those comparisons worth bearing in mind as we go forward, though we're going to try as much as possible to concentrate on, uh, on, the, on the French case before we maybe broaden out towards the end. So firstly, uh, George, what is, can you tell us what the structure of the argument uh, that Julie presents here? And why does he think uh, the twilights are entering, the elites are entering their twilight? Yeah, I mean, it should be um, made clear this is not Twilight, the film. Um, it's Twilight as in the, the end of. Um, but no, I really enjoyed reading this book. It's got a good quote on the back from the Financial Times. This book will make you fret and question your moral integrity. So uh, yeah, it certainly did that for me, at least to a certain extent. 
Um, yeah, so I mean, <clears throat> it's it's a bit of a rant, isn't it? This book, and that's one of the reasons why it's such a good read because he's clearly he's clearly angry and he's not going to take it anymore. But yeah, he's, so he's, he essentially says that France has become an American society, like all the rest, inegalitarian and multicultural, and then sort of stages this conflict between higher France, which are all those who gain from globalization or who are protected against its adverse consequences. This privileged stratum consists not only of the country's elite and the traditional upper classes, but also the new bourgeoisie that supports them. And I'm sure we'll talk about the new bourgeoisie um, a little bit more. Um, and so this higher France against peripheral France. So against essentially everybody who's excluded uh, from the benefits of globalization um, and actually geographically excluded from the from the new citadels. So from the the cities um, of higher France, which um, are the concentration of the the cultural and economic capital. And, yeah, I think it's just a really um, uh, kind of. It's just a really scorching account of, of what the new bourgeoisie stand for and how their um, how their way of, of, of selling openness um, or, or kind of couching their class interest in the rhetoric of, of common interests and of, of these republic of Republican ideals, as well as as well as of openness, um, excludes um, lower France and peripheral France. And this, I think, is, you know, completely um of the time and very prescient when you're talking about the gilet jaune because it came out originally in french in 2016 although it was published in 2019 in in english so yeah i mean i i, I don't know what you guys thought but i massively enjoyed enjoyed reading it. i think i was the one who suggested um that we do it as a book club book so yeah well done you <laughs> thanks um yeah cool. bill yeah i um i mean i think it's uh What's been said so far is um, accurately represents what's in the book. Um, <laughs> <Thanks. see. laughs> You're welcome. Um, it is a blistering read and it gets stronger the deeper you go into it. Um, and I suppose it has many, um, you know, there are many kind of striking elements of it which um, leap out. But it helps, I suppose, also to it's very useful to read something about because um, as Alex intimated at the beginning, frequently so much of um, Anglo-American commentary uh, doesn't kind of go much further than beyond Anglo-America. So it's useful to have something talking about another Western country um, in such detail. And obviously, I mean, the kind of the element, the the reason um GE was so uh, why he was seen as why his influence his star has waned is because it was precisely uh, the geography that helps explain the Gilets jaunes revolt um, because it was people who lived in peri-urban or ex-urban districts who were reliant on um, transport on their own cars and who were very close to the very close to um, their financial limits who were particularly squeezed by Macron's green tax and this was what prompted the initial um, the initial kind of popular anger and revolt. So it was attention to the geographical spread of how um, changing labor markets, and this is linked specifically to um, what G says about how the emergence of new citadels, which we'll talk about more in a bit. Um, but these new um, uh, these kind of new metropolitan cosmopolitan cities dominated by the haute bourgeoisie, um, by well-paid professional middle classes. Um, with a service class, which is usually immigrant because much cheaper. So the people who um, are nannies, cleaners, 
um, work, um, you know, security staff and kind of working kind of menial, underpaid um, service sector jobs that they live in this city and that the traditional so-called white working class has been essentially expelled and they have to pay fees to come into the city of one kind or another, whether that be congestion charges or green taxes, they have to pay to come into the places they work. And so he likens these to the old, um, the old urban centers of medieval Europe, where you where you were taxed to enter um, enter the towns and the cities. And this is why he calls them new citadels. So a kind of a neo feudal effect in which um, yeah. the working class have been expelled from gentrifying districts. And now are um, with the consequence, obviously, they have to travel and are in much more difficult um, working environments. And so um, this is so he was put in a very strong position as a geographer to explain the specific dynamics of the Gilets Jaunes revolt before it erupted. Yeah. And it really, I think we put it even a bit more strongly than that. The one big idea of this, it addresses the question which is which concerns all kind of left or socialist thinking, which is who who and where are the downtrodden which will supposedly rise up right i mean that's the that's the big question and that was always previously the cities in in the urban core which were industrialized against uh, the kind of rural or small town backdrop and what this argues and it argues this in line with uh, for example, similar to what Joel Kotkin argues, who we interviewed in Kelly Bunga 3, which was at episode 78, if you want to check that out, as well as an episode that we did on cities uh, with David Adler and Ben Bradlow back around episode 40-something, uh, which is that you know this process seems to effectively have reversed that the downtrodden, to put it in kind of pretty traditional terms, uh, are are in small towns and in rural areas and not in the cities. And this, I think, poses pretty difficult questions to a lot of left assumptions. So I, well, I would, I, he doesn't, I don't think he denies the downtrodden are in the cities. No, no, he doesn't. But only doesn't, that, but yeah, it's only to say that there is a specific dynamic. The point is, so, I mean, he makes this point very well, in fact, is that the, because the working class, the traditional working class, um, kind of white working class has been expelled, it has allowed um, the middle class and the wealthy to reframe all questions of inequality as essentially cultural, because the only kind of working class people they see tend to be multinational, uh, multi-ethnic, um, the ones who work in the cities, who are their service class effectively. And so it means that they're able to reframe all questions of class as questions of um, cultural assimilation, of cultural difference, of multiculturalism. And this is also the stick they use to beat um, the old working class with, that they're racist, um, anti-immigrant, xenophobic, fascistic. Um, so it's uh, it's very, it, I mean, the geography... The class, the way the class factors into the geography has very kind of specific effects, according to um, his account anyway. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, um, you know, not to talk too much about the UK, although it seems like some of these things really in in the wake of the election results uh, <clears throat> just really resonate. But yeah, I think this this idea about moving the core, the, the, the conflict, look, essentially class conflict to, to a cultural space is, is such a crucial point. And he he really, um, I think he really nailed the new the new bourgeoisie in there, the, the way that they've managed um, to do this. And I mean, there are so many passages that I would like to read out from this book, and I'm sure I'll read a few. But this this one, I think, was, you know, really, really good. The upper classes call for equality among the nation's regions, while at the same time promoting metropolitan 
metropolization and gentrification. They demand greater social diversity, but separate themselves from the lower classes by living apart from them. They urge everyone to get along, but create a ghettoized educational system in which the children of the poor have no choice but to go to public schools that their own children are able to avoid. They uphold Republican principles are none more resolutely than the principle of equality, but in reality, they favor inegalitarianism. And I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's 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 always interesting to have somebody talking about another um, another country and use, obviously the ideas of the bourgeoisie inequality, particularly in, in the French context, have, have that historical um, uh, resonance. But yeah, I mean, that could be basically written about about London, the city which I, I live in, which just feels like such a exclusive rich person's uh, rich person city. Tell us, but can you be a bit more specific? What is it that makes it feel that way? Well, I guess or a horny-handed son of toil such as yourself. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, I guess it's the the processes of of, ex, of exclusion from um, from formally open institutions. Um, so there is no, obviously, there's no um, formal exclusion from certain parts of London, but the costs of of entry or of um, of the, the social barriers of various sorts which are constructed more or less openly um to being there to, to to living in certain parts of that of this of this very rich city i mean anomalously rich for the whole of europe not just for the uk it does it does feel like um um <clears throat> yeah i guess it has a very a very different feel than it would it would have done 50 or 75 years ago um because essentially who's who's going to the schools in the centre of, of London. It's the same people who are, uh, the children of the same people who are who are promoting an idea of openness while at the same time probably not realising that this is not really open to everybody. Right, so to drill down a little bit further uh, into these processes, and apologies for the isms and isations that are about to follow, but I, it might be worth explaining what the main processes that are described in the book because the book i think does two things one it uh, explains what these new divisions and inequalities are and looks at the ideologies that are used to sustain these divisions so you've got on the one hand the, what affects the the upper france uh, is metropolization and globalization so the process that george has just described of and phil did before that in terms of uh, grouping rich people in urban centers and of globalization in terms of uh, free markets the export of jobs all the rest of it which i think people are pretty familiar with by now and on the other side the the problems affecting the working class especially the peripheral france is the, 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 he cites three and he cites them in the conclusion which is actually quite helpful because it, it does help frame uh, what you've read up till then which is social insecurity sedentarization and separatism uh, sedentarization is just basically people being stuck in small towns uh, where there are no jobs and there's no growth and often there's population degrowth in those areas and separatism relates to uh, you know basically identity politics to multiculturalism to sectarianism and divides uh, for example between new immigrants and uh, traditional uh, white residents of those areas or even between different uh, for example he cites the example of uh, more established Muslim immigrants from North Africa and newer Muslim immigrants from Sub-Saharan Africa, where there's tensions even between those communities. Uh, and, uh, and so, are, and just yeah. to can I go ahead? Can I throw in? So, is to add um, so two kind of points to add to what Alex has said with the sedentarization. He says that it's a self-reinforcing dynamic. 
Um, so it's also it has ideological components because the worst thing you can be from the viewpoint of the kind of globalized metropolitan cosmopolitan elite is to be sedentary. You've got to be mobile, ready to go wherever the labor market demands that you go. You have to be cosmopolitan oriented to the outside world. You have to be ready to kind of cut all ties with um, your surroundings and your connections. Um, but the sedentary aspect is that it has a self-reinforcing dynamic precisely because as people, um, as working class, lower middle class people become increasingly squeezed, they have no option but to rely on um, networks of social solidarity, friends, family, local community. Um, and so this reinforces the dynamic of, um, of staying put. So he, um, he's very, he draws out the kind of uh, the dynamic of sedentarization very well and the way in which it's uh, ideologically delegitimized, but at the same time is built into the structure of the way in which um, contemporary France and by wider implication, the West functions because there are whole groups of people who have no choice but to remain where they are because they're effectively trapped, but also that they have social solidarity in those places. And also linked to that is, and this is, I think, what's on the other aspect about separatism. And this is where I think um, it's to his credit, and this is what makes him uh, such an interesting author, that he's willing to look some of the hard things in the face. And he talks about the way in which um, working-class Jews and anti-Semitism in France has grown to such tremendous proportions. And he gives us statistics, which I've never actually seen before, of Jewish emigration from France to Israel as a result of them being squeezed out of um, districts that they used to uh, live in, in, um, in working class parts of Paris and various arrondissements. And now they're being, they're effectively being expelled from them as part of the um, the growing kind of tension between various cultural communities within these urban centers. Yeah, so I think it'd be good also, I mean, just to put a final point, I think on some of the more, let, let's say, objective things that he deals with before talking about the ideological aspects, because I think, I mean, this is, that's what makes the book, I think, as you've just hinted at, Phil, makes the book really interesting, is the way that he looks at the way that ideology masks some of these things. And so I just wanted to pull out one quote, because, you know, the, the dominant idea, and this applies to, you know, the US still, and certainly to Britain, is that, you know, poverty that the poor are the urban poor and that they're generally multi-ethnic and that you have rich suburbs elsewhere, right? So he goes, claims that the poverty, excuse me, claims that the rate of poverty is almost always higher in the urban core, therefore dishonestly reaffirm the dominant perception, namely that French society is divided between the disadvantaged populations of the banlieue of major cities and the integrated middle class that inhabits all other areas, suburban and rural alike. Um, so there's this, his main point is that there's this new division, which is the peripheral France, which is forgotten about and washed washed out as either being old people who will die off uh, or as actually being far richer than those areas actually are. Um, and that the the real poor are, you know, the, the, the kind of multi-ethnic working class. And so he's trying to obviously problematize this notion and point out to point to this new geographical division that happens. But I think the more important thing is the way that ideology functions to mask this so I, one way he that he does this which is already hinted at is that this new bourgeoisie which is probably another way of saying the professional managerial class uh predominantly is that they're convinced that class doesn't exist so the the bourgeoisie of the past were very aware of class divisions and therefore they were more elitist they sensed themselves to be better um 
they defended tradition and order and things like that because they were challenged by, you know, a, a, an unruly working class. Whereas the PMC of today, who, you know, under the way that Julie describes it, hide themselves away in these uh, metropolitan citadels, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of central arrondissement of, of Paris being the exemplary case here, that those, that the new PMC, the new bourgeoisie, uh, don't aren't aware of class and try to defend themselves as better, but try to pretend that class doesn't exist. Uh, they try to see themselves as an everyman. So whereas in the past, kind of bourgeois ideology emphasized order, tradition, morality, today they that their kind of watchwords are openness, diversity, modernity, modernity especially in terms of uh, technology, right? In terms of um, being the most advanced, having the new tech startups, using mm-hmm. the new mobile phones, being connected and open and global. And so that is the way in which those divisions are masked by pretending that they're the ones who are open uh, and diverse, whereas you've got the old left-behind working class as being you know held back by their own closed mentalities and so they they that's the main way that class is obfuscated because instead of looking at these as real objective material phenomena it's treated as a con these class divisions are seen as merely the consequence of wrong ideas effectively wrong ideas amongst the poor yeah i think it's this is i think by far the most enjoyable part of the book is um when he really gets on a roll in it, <laughs> uh, talking about the boboized upper classes and their laid-back style of domination, um, and yeah, I think I think it's an important point though that they do not accept their their class position. You had, I think, it seems a bit dated now, but maybe ten years ago, people were talking about hipsters um, and this kind of distinction between economic and cultural capital. Um, but no, I think this is the 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 rhetoric of altruism, of common good, of openness. Um, we, t- we see this throughout, you know, the PMC in, in many different contexts. Um, this is the, this, the style uh, or the, the sort of ideas and the vocabulary of progressive neoliberalism. This, these are the, the ways in which the, the winners <clears throat> are, are sort of uh, from, of, of class struggle are explaining away um the class struggle in the first place and their and their privileged or eventual um winning position within society um yeah i mean there's so many so many great great quotes that, that could read um but i think there's there's one way he talks about the hypocritical rebelocracy um of the educated left which came to despise capital the banks the market and the multinationals while ceaselessly advocating globalization so long as it does not harm, harm their own interests and that this has alienated all but a small fraction of the party's working class supporters. And I think this is an interesting way to frame it, that there is within a number of left organisations at the moment, a bit of a struggle going on between um, um, like a liberal left faction and, uh, and, a, and a working class faction. Um, and clearly, in the case of, of Labour in the UK, it's, it's, it's obvious which, which faction uh, won, won that struggle recently. Um, but yeah, I think that's just that that's one of the best reasons to read this read this book. It's just to sort of he's clearly he's clearly very pissed off um by these people. Uh very strikingly, he said in an interview recently, I think with the FT, that he's um stopped talking to academics. Uh which I um apparently because his um 
because his uh, ideas is, is are... He, is uh, he giving you some ideas? <laughs> he's, um, his views, of course, have stirred such controversy in France, and because he's so um, ruthless and unrelenting in his attack on the um, professionalized middle classes and their refusal to accept... Um, the refusal to kind of, uh, well, this critique of their ideology, which is dressed up as being kind of objective social science and what have you, that he's had such um, relentless kind of hostility that effectively he's turned away from um, engaging anymore in academic debates over his theories, which I thought was striking. Um, and uh, given the kind of some of the responses, yeah, I mean, I can understand why that might be. Yeah, I, I think, the, you know, the two most confronting ideas, especially for anyone on the left, are one which George has already hinted at, which is the way in which uh, anti-capitalism, I guess, is a bourgeois ideology, <laughs> um, if that's not putting it too strongly. But that basically, one, social protest has become very gentrified, uh, which he and he makes reference to the carnivalesque nature of a lot of contemporary protest. Uh, I think like Nuit Debout, which was a kind of uh, antecedent of the gilet jaune but which was actually far more middle class rooted in graduates students and so on um you know would be i guess one example of that but uh, it's worth it's worth reading out in fact i think um so where he says he's talking about the the pre the kind of um form of social protests pre gilet jaune um dissent now takes the form of a managed and convivial display of dominant opinion a sign that we are living in an age of supervised struggle in which street demonstrations have come to acquire a festive character. One variant of the new style of bourgeois mobilization, colloquially known as slacktivism, is a lackadaisical way of showing support for a cause that falsely gives the impression of actually engaging in meaningful social protest. End of quote. And I think that idea of its um, the conviviality of protest is really powerfully striking and has long been the giveaway that um, it's fundamentally unserious, that there is actually no conflict, that it's contained within the, um, it's either kind of sociologically contained within the elite or that it's already, um, it's an internal dispute among the elite. The conviviality, the form of supervised protest with the cops are never that, um, are never that brutal in their response and all of the kind of carnivalesque style of middle-class protest that has dominated um, social protest for the last, I don't know, maybe even 20 years um, persistently until, at least in France, at least until the Gilets Jaunes and more recently, um, some of the photos coming out of the general strike. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he, but the, the, the difficult thing, I think, is that he goes even further because he says that the critique of capitalism and especially the sort of critique of finance and being against finance capital um, is the new bourgeoisie or professional managerial class uh, hiding the violence of class conflict? So that's quite interesting because we would take as read, presumably, that a critique of capitalism is a very challenging idea, that it's rebellious, that it challenges the powers that be. But he argues that the form in, the form it takes, um, saying, you know, we're against the banks, we're against the corporations, uh, we're against the rich people, is actually a, a product of the middle class uh, and which which disguises real class conflict, which is a pretty challenging idea. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I, I, that um, passage, I remember, yeah, very striking because I guess there is a sense in which the, the struggle against finance capital is quite abstract and it can be used in, a, in, in certain populist moves to sort of say, well, you know, 
that's it it's the banks it's not it's not individual members it's not bourgeoisie and proletariat it's it's the banks it's and and high finance capital versus everybody else um i mean there is i think that the whole book is is a is a provocation and i don't know whether he bends the stick too far in in some cases um but yeah i mean that it's definitely the case that french and british society are heavily financialized and we would i'm i'm guessing all support some degree of definancialization but yeah it's it, it's it definitely makes you think is 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 it too easy is it an escape route to just say oh you know it's finance capital that's what we need to struggle against and actually not look at some of the more concrete and um immediate struggles well and th- i think there's another thing which is that that focus on corporations as the bad guys doing the bad things lets off the hook uh politics political institutions, the media, and so on, the whole, the, the kind of superstructural uh, aspects of capitalism, uh, which I think he hints at being very complicit. And actually, I, I think I would be right in saying it draws the ire of a lot of the working class today, both in France, as in the US, as in Britain, more than it does corporations, you know, so it's the people who are who pretend to be uh, the social betters of the working class um, and talk down to them or get more a more hostile treatment. So, you know, people hate, uh, you know, your, your uh, I don't know, your, your Hillary Clintons more than they do your Jeff Bezos. Maybe, maybe. But in any case, mm-hmm. I, I, I think the what, I, what it's useful in pointing to in, in terms of uh, Judy's critique of uh, the kind of middle class anti-capitalism is that there's something deeper going on, which is that there's such a lack of faith in political establishment, uh, in the political classes, and for and lack of belief that any solution could come from the existing mm-hmm. political leadership, that the solution is the defection of the working class, that the working class has basically decided, no, we don't have, there's no solutions to be provided politically, that we need to seek our own solutions uh, to problems rather than, than look to politics for it. So... And, and I think he even makes a mention that, you know, entrepreneurialism, you know, small scale entrepreneurialism has more uh, more buy in from a lot of the working class, especially the working class, which is which is not working in the state sector, um, but which is very precaritized working in the private sector, which is that I'm better off starting off my own tiny little business and trying to make do because at least there I have a degree of autonomy and I'm helping myself rather than waiting for, you know, the, the old Social Democratic Party to help me out. And I think that's something that's very difficult to grapple with. I think it's a very real phenomenon, but it's not very easy to grapple with because is the solution then to give up on politics and to uh, just Mm. try to organize the social and try to um, encourage this defection of the working class? Or is there a way to find, uh, you know, to to create new forms of leadership which might be able to inspire people? You know, that's a really difficult question. Yeah, I think it's... um... He doesn't offer any solutions really of any sort in the whole book, which is in some ways um, frustrating, but actually I think is a good is a good fit. I mean, that's what we we have to think about ourselves. But the yeah, I think it's just really striking that he opens that chapter on the defection of the working class by saying, having quote, having broken their chains, the chains of traditional political establishment, uh, traditional political attachments, the members of the working class refuse any longer to be enslaved by their old political and cultural masters. End quote. And I think that's like that's basically what happened in according to some people's readings and here talking about phil's um in the in the 2019 uk election i mean this could be seen as one of the 
the the main points to take away from from that election that the the working class broke with 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 labor with with quite historic consequences but yeah i mean that that it's hardly surprising that there's been that sort of um um defection if you if you want to call it that but i don't know if he kind of gets the picture a little bit wrong to a certain extent he says he talks about the abandonment of traditional attachments but i think the analysis is that there's there's been for quite a while a root cause of the absence of representation i think that's probably what happened i mean there's there's a dynamic um but you have to look at both both sides but i mean that's how the void the political void happens is that there's a movement there's a withdrawal by both elites and 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 by um the citizenry because the the processes of representation aren't, aren't there when he says traditional attachments, I mean, I think he's referring there specifically to traditional political attachments, which is to say very yeah, modern. He's referring, to the, soci- he's referring yeah. to the Socialist Party. The Socialist Party and the centre-right and the, even the coordinates of left and right, which in France have a lot more you know, depth and, and um, yeah, kind of buy-in than in many other countries. I mean, I think in, in France, the, obviously it was born there. And I think that, you know, left and right, people are more politicized to the notion of left and right, of the center right, of the socialists and the conservatives than are, you know, in many other places, certainly more than in the US, probably more than in Britain too. So I I think there might be worth maybe to take this opportunity uh, to talk about really quickly what are some particularly French aspects of this um, so that we don't just kind of smooth over this as if it's a, a, a tract about general political developments across the West. He points to the Americanization of society, which I don't think you would find in a criticism, you know, you wouldn't find in an equivalent book written about Britain, for example. Um, And what he sees as the Americanization, and he problematizes this Americanization of France, which is that you've got uh, what he calls an American society with a Republican past. So the Republican universality, which is still defended by a lot of the elite, the center-left, the center-right, actually disguises class divisions and disguises an actually existing multiculturalism in the sense of the the separatism, the identity politics, the communal conflicts and so on that are actually talked about. So um, the, the Republican ideal of, you know, of a certain equality that you're all in this together uh, actually disguises these these real divisions. Um, yeah. I, I, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go on. I mean, no, my... no, no, I think I think that's I the... Gonna... the, the... There's two things that are particularly French about this book. One is the the mode of expression. You can tell it's been it's been translated from French, and I think that makes it a great uh, a great read. Phrases such as, as "bobo," which is always so much fun to to say and to think about. And the second is exactly what you said that the assumption of republicanism as a shared um, political framework, which you which you just don't have in in um, many many other places. I mean, even in America, you don't have that that's um i guess shared starting point of, of of what politics is about that you do in in france that there's a republican model that you have to live up to or that you have to somehow embody and and explicate through through your political project um and yes yeah, so i think this is where i was going to uh, disagree um i think i mean because on the one hand i think complaints about americanization are some of the um it's cast more kind of in terms of economic structure, but I think it's one of the traditional problems of the French left is, um, and it's kind of petty bourgeois character um, is complaining about Americanization, which so easily slides into a, into a kind of um, 
uh, resentful French chauvinism, you know, going right back to um, these pathetic campaigns the French Communist Party used to launch against Coca-Cola, um, as well as kind of petty bourgeois kind of um, French farmers complaining about McDonald's and all this. Um, so there's an element of that, I think, as well. And I think the, you know, it's in fact given this, some, you know, in some ways the ideological and political closeness of the two societies, both um, positing themselves as universal models. And also, I think the republicanism is, in fact, the closest thing that you would have is the, the society with the closest kind of idea of a republic of a shared um, political framework of republicanism would precisely be America. So I think there was, um, I think, to me, the complaints about or the way in which he um, labels the trends that he sees as Americanization seem to me to be weaker, not least because it seems that um, the problems of identity politics don't play out in quite the same way in America the way that they do in France. So complaining about those things as Americanization seems to me to be disingenuous. No, I think most evils in the world come from the United States of America and there should be a wall built around the US. Because you're trying desperately, because you're a gringo trying desperately to fit in, Alex, and it's <laughs> trying no, too no, hard. No, but... Okay, so let's move on to uh, as a way of closing this out. What we think are the our favorite the, our favorite bits and maybe our less favorite bits, uh, George. Um, yeah, so I think there was quite a lot to choose from, um, but just one thing that really made me think. I don't know if it's so much a, a favorite bit, but just something that you you know sometimes you read something and it's and it sticks in in your um, in your head. So when he talks about what um, I guess the problem of identity um, and partic with particular reference to, to the working class. So, um, and I think this is because I think this is something which is, is going to become more and more important in, in the British context and um, I'm sure many other contexts as well. So he says, what makes the problem, sorry, <clears throat> quote, what makes the problem of identity so intractable is not that the people of peripheral France think about it in the wrong way, but that they are uh, obliged to endure a life of social and cultural insecurity under a system they've not freely chosen um, and then end quote. And then he says, quote, the embrace of identity by members of the working class, regardless of ethnic or national origin, is a natural response to a model of society that the dominant classes have chosen and imposed on them against their will. End quote. And it's just interesting that he frames the, this issue around um, class identity specifically as a response to um, to powerlessness or a response to the inability to, to choose a specific um, way of life. And I think this is particularly interesting in, in the in the sort of British context because it's I think we're going to enter a enter a phase where working class identity is 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 problematized if you want to put it that way or that you see a, a whole range of um, explanations as to why working class identities are um, are exclusionary reactive fascist etc 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 and I just really hadn't thought about it in in that way so it really it, it was thought-provoking my um my favorite bit concerned the idea of anti-fascism as a um class weapon and this was really fascinating to me for a number of reasons so i mean um i think uh encountering so i mean my kind of encounter with the pernicious political character of anti-fascism in recent times has come through um, criticizing humanitarian imperialism. 
um, strikingly that um, anti-fascism has been a kind of a crucial enabler of the era of perpetual war since the end of the Cold War. The constant, you know, the need for constant um, wars against new forms of fascism, totalitarian dictators uh, in the third world are cast as the new Hitler. Islamism is cast as a new fascism that needs to be, um, we need to fight against perpetually. So that was my... Um, you know, this was uh, my kind of encounter from my own um, work within my field and discipline with anti-fascism. So it was interesting to see someone else pick it up um, on the left as well, uh, because it's so explicitly it's something which is such a kind of um, pillar of uh, left politics still today. And so he talks about the way in which anti-fascism is how um French elites manage to delegitimize and stigmatize their opponents immediately as being fascist. But even more interestingly, he sees he ties it into Piero Paolo Pasolini, the French, um, the radical, the Marxist, um, French, sorry, radical Italian film director um, from over forty years ago. And it was um, I'd never I never had come. I knew that Pasolini was. Uh, um, uh, kind of heterodox maverick figure even on the Italian left in all sorts of ways but I didn't realize that he was already sensitive so long ago to the way in which anti-fascism had constituted a new orthodoxy what in, in Pasolini's words and they're quoted in um, in G's book in quote a facile anti-fascism aimed at an archaic fascism that no longer exists and that will never exist again um, and that was I thought um in astonishingly prescient by Pasolini and also um, ties in entirely accurately to how it's mobilized by the mainstays of the Republican establishment in um, in France, the centre-right, um, the centre-left, um, the liberal centre constantly defend themselves by claiming to be anti-fascist and that all resistance against them is necessarily um, authoritarian, um, xenophobic racial nationalism, and so it was. Uh, it was. It was striking and heartening, even to see just how ruthless uh, Jui is and how willing he is to take the critique of the current left. Absolutely. I mean, he goes. He goes even further than that, though. I think it's it's really a, it's a really important point. What explains anti-fascism in the absence of of fascism? And he puts his he puts his finger on it. He says it is a class. It's a class weapon um, and the new bourgeoisie are only interested in protecting their own class interests. It's not a it's not a it's not a project really to eliminate fascism, because as you as as you put it, it you know, in it just doesn't exist in the way that that it's being constructed to exist. And you, you see who gains from um, anti-fascism. It's precisely the PMC, the new the new bourgeoisie. And I think that it's all it's always when people talk about class interests um in an in analysis of ideology that's always that's always good reading absolutely i i love it because no pasaran suddenly became the rallying cry of the prevailing economic interests and the public intellectuals who speak for them on both left and right uh, yeah <laughs> which is that was, really that was brilliant and and to so to like feed into I guess what what my takeaway from it or my favorite bit is I mean this is obviously in relation to the vote for the Front National but you know he, Judy is pretty clear about this that the, the a lot a large section of the votes for what was the Front National now it's the the Rassemblement, Rassemblement National uh, is 
basically people voting for the one party that is most outside the system, that is most rejected, that is most marginal uh, and seizing on them. Of course, we may say that it actually is not a real anti-capitalist party and that the real anti-capitalists are such and such and such. But nevertheless, in in, a politi- in purely political terms, the the yeah the, the Marine Le Pen and so on are the most outside the system, and that's why they garner you know a a good around twenty percent share of the vote regularly. But that in many ways disguises what is the most profound phenomenon, which is uh, as I've already said, the defection of the working class. That is that most people don't vote. That most people that a large section of the working class decides simply not to endorse any political force because they just don't believe in them. And I think that's still the more fundamental thing going on here. And so my favorite bit of it, my takeaway, is this nice little kind of dialectical thing that he says in the conclusion, which is the retreat of England and France from Europe is therefore answered by the retreat of the cosmopolitan bourgeoisie from England and France. So to to put that in another way, what you have is... um, you know, for example, with the vote for Brexit uh, and and the, cons- the the kind of areas of the country that that came from, um, is answered by the cosmopolitan bourgeoisie to pull away from the nation. So to treat anyone with any even slightly political or much less sentimental attachment to uh, to to the to place to the nation as irredeemably you know fascist and racist, uh, and to pull away from that and to look for you know look to the global for uh, for your for your real home right so the 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 cosmopolitan bourgeoisie looks to in in the european case to the eu as as its as its real home because the, the nation no longer is its is its home because it's full of racists supposedly meanwhile uh, the working class itself is kind of in some ways pulls back from the nation or at least the political institutions of the nation uh, in this in this process of defection, uh, as Julie calls it, which which I already uh, spoke a little bit about, so I think you've got this mirror process of uh, both sections of the working class, especially in peripheral France, pulling away from the nation, um, pulling away from the political institutions of the nation, and the the metropolitan uh, PMC and elite pulling away from the nation as well as uh, being a site where. Uh, effectively, the working classes have too much of a voice, and and therefore need to look to uh, to the EU or to the global uh, to the global context, I guess, as as the way to escape from from the nation. Yes, I mean it's it's it is quite striking. He continues that that quote that that you read out. The upper classes will have to confront an existential problem: how is a global model that has been rejected by a majority of citizens to be assured of a future? So it's, I mean, it, I guess it's it's kind of looking at you could say, as as in fact, I think to a certain extent, the other two books that we did in the previous two book clubs um, did uh, what politics looks like at the end of the end of history. So you've you've got the the, the return of, um, of of struggle to to a certain extent, but the institutions that the previously catalyzed representation up to the the level of the nation don't really exist um, for the working class and the um, ruling class doesn't want to be associated with the nation is looking for this kind of global um, kind of age of, of, of city states which are somehow floating above uh, above the nations which they're obviously situated in so yeah I think it's it's not a kind of incredibly reassuring way to for him to conclude but I think it, it definitely captures something of the of what's missing in a lot of the um, sort of contemporary political, struggle particularly in 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 europe in in the eu 
All right, great stuff. I think uh, maybe we can leave it there. Um, I hope we have transmitted it to you. If you haven't read the book yet, uh, The Degree to Which is an important book, which challenges a lot of commonly held notions on, on the left and uh, is really worth I think thinking my, about more deeply. And my favorite, I think, yeah, of the books on. we've done so far, I should say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, very worth reading. And it's short. It's like uh, 140 odd pages. So uh, very, very quickly digestible and quite important. Um, so that's it for Alpha Bunga Bunga this year. Of course, you're, if, that's if you're a uh, $10 and up patron who's receiving this early. Uh, so wishing you again, happy holidays and fuck Christmas. No, I'm, I'm not sure to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, have Counts a lovely Christmas. Christmas if you do Christmas. Okay, fine. Be a, be, do, do be a, be a Cromwellian. <laughs> it's my dad's birthday on Christmas Day, so uh, I'll be be celebrating that, even if good. not Birth, celebrating Birthdays Christmas. are way better than Christmas, because then it's like one person is getting presents rather than everyone giving each other presents. And it's like, well, we could have just gone and, you know, bought ourselves something I think, ourselves. I think Christmas is somebody's birthday, though. You know, not, I'm not saying uh, the whole world's celebrating my dad's birthday. I don't know who you're talking about. All right. That's it for Alpha Bunga Bunga. Catch you later. Bye bye.